You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. It may come as a surprise just to hear it said that we live in a world that generally looks down on conversion. It may not be altogether apparent to all of us, but if you think about it for a few minutes, you'll begin to see what I'm talking about. In more and more arenas, whether it's places of business or universities or different public spaces, the notion that one person ought to attempt to convert another person from one religion to their religion is increasingly looked down upon. You don't do that sort of thing anymore. Because after all, if you try to convert someone from their religion to your religion, what are you saying about their religion? You are implying that it's deficient, that it's misleading, that it's insufficient, or that it's patently false. And in contrast, you're suggesting that your own religion, your own faith, your own system of beliefs are inherently better and all-sufficient and more desirable and true. And in a world where we say, you've got your truth and I've got my truth, the idea that I might try to persuade another person or that you might try to evangelize or convert someone from some other religion or no religion at all to your own viewpoint is increasingly looked down upon. Everybody's got to have their own truth and everyone's own truth is equally valid and that means every religion is equally valid. So instead of trying to persuade people to leave one religion or faith system and come to another one, we're encouraged just to kind of let everybody do what they want to do and not attempt to convert. The problem with that is that Christianity is a deeply conversion-oriented religion. And we see that as it's overwhelmingly apparent as you read through the New Testament. And not just the New Testament in general, but particularly in Acts. In fact, the section of Acts that begins with chapter 8, and it's important to realize that, that we're moving from the first major section of Acts in chapters 1 through 7, right? So what, good job. You've made it through the first major section. We've got a long road to go. We're going to make it all the way through 28 chapters of Acts, but you've made it through the first major section. The second major section begins in chapter 8. And it involves the movement of the gospel beyond the boundaries of Ju Jerusalem and Judea to other areas like Samaria, which is where we're going to live today. But Acts, in this next section, as the gospel goes beyond Jerusalem and through Samaria and beyond Samaria, presents to us a series of conversion stories, conversion narratives. We hear about Simon. We hear about Philip. We're going to hear about Cornelius and others. So we just get this series. Of, as, the, as the kingdom spreads, the kingdom spreads through conversions. And Christianity is thus a deeply conversion-oriented religion. In each case, and we'll ask this question today as we look at these two very different conversion experiences, 
In each case, the author of Acts, Luke, is prompting his readers, whether it's first century, 21st century, or anywhere in between, all of us, to ask questions like, like, what does it mean to be converted? And what does it entail? And are there outward signs of conversion? Are there inward transformations that take place? What does it mean? And what does it look like? And can it misfire? And, and, and how do we know when we get it right? Or when God gets it right? Or when it's right at all? What are the questions that we raise? And as we read through these, con- these conversion accounts, we'll find over and over and over again, especially in these first two, that conversion is less about what you get and more about who you become. Sometimes we treat conversion and evangelism like it's a, like it's a deal where you get all these benefits, your best life now. But when we come to Acts, it's not quite that way. After all, we just heard about a guy who loved Jesus and got killed for it. It's less about what you get out of the deal and more about the person that you are becoming in relation to Jesus Christ. And we get that contrast in this section of Scripture. You've got one guy, Simon, who is in it for what he can get out of it, isn't he? Power and a payday. And you've got another guy. We don't even get his name. He's just the Ethiopian eunuch who walks away converted and rejoicing in Jesus. Radically different postures here. So let's dig in a little more deeply and consider the nature of conversion in this text and how it becomes for us sort of a diagnostic tool to consider how Christ is at work in our own lives. So the church gets persecuted. Stephen has just been killed. The pressure is ramping up. It looks like it's not just the religious. I mean, if if this many Christians are going to start spreading out, it's probably not just a handful of, of ornery power players. There's some serious opposition that's happening here. So the church begins to spread. The church begins to scatter. There's a systematic persecution. We hear about Saul who's one of the chief persecutors. We're going to find, we hear about his conversion experience later on too, don't we? That's one of these many conversion experiences. But as the church spreads, they spread to the city of Samaria. And as soon as we hear Samaria, we're reminded of what Jesus said back in chapter 1, aren't we? That you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, kind of city, county, to Samaria, to that larger region, and to the ends of the earth. So we know that Jesus is using this increased opposition, this increased persecution. Like, this doesn't mean Jesus is no longer in the control room, is he? Remember we talked about Jesus, he's ascended, we read it in the scriptures, we said it in the creed together, he's enthroned at the right hand of God Almighty. We've just seen him in Acts chapter 7, standing at the right hand of God, interceding for Stephen and welcoming him into his presence. So Jesus is still on the throne. The persecution of the church, the suffering of the church, does not mean Jesus is no longer sovereign. Let me say that one more time. The suffering suffering and persecution of the church does not mean Jesus is no longer sovereign. The sovereign Lord Jesus Christ is at work in the midst of the suffering of his people to advance the cause of the gospel and the kingdom counterintuitively. And that's what's happening in chapter 8 of Acts. 
So Philip, one of those deacons, like Stephen, so we kind of got a little glimpse. We hear about the seven deacons that they pick, these seven servants who are helping with the food and the ministry because it's gotten to be too much for the apostles to handle by themselves. We meet Stephen. He winds up dead. Now we meet Philip, and he's spreading out, and he's preaching the gospel in Samaria. So he's in Samaria, and people are believing, and people are responding just like in Jerusalem. Things are getting crazy, and there's, there's this revival that's happening that's taking place, and, and people are coming to Jesus. And there's one guy in the crowd who's particularly attentive to it. And his name is Simon, and he's got a reputation. He's considered great, and he amazes people, and he amazes people with magic. So he's kind of he's like this guy who's like the horse and pony show thing, right? He's out here, and he's, he's kind of playing his tricks and doing his thing, and people think he's like a god in human form. He's got all this power, and he's impressive, and he's making money off of it. And then Philip shows up, and people are amazed by Simon, but they believe Philip. And when they believe Philip's story of the gospel, they're baptized. And then Philip, we are told, begins doing signs and wonders and miracles in that place, because as new revelation happens, as the gospel goes into new places, it is attested through signs and wonders. And so Simon who believes and is baptized, right? It looked like, this looks good. Here's a guy, magician. People like basically think he's a God in human form. That's what it means. We think that's what it means when it says, this man is the power of God that is called great. It's a weird way of saying, or it's kind of a, a, an ancient world way of saying we think he's basically a, a God man. He's kind of a God in human form. In the ancient world, it's pretty frequent that people like Zeus could take on a human shape and kind of do their thing, mess around with people, and then do whatever they want to do next. So that's the kind of thing we've got going on here. People are amazed by him because they think he's this sort of semi-deity in human form. He's just a regular guy who knows how to kind of pull the wool over people, you know, slight a hand kind of things, and he's always looking for a way to boost his revenue. And so he converts, and he kind of has these outward signs of conversion, doesn't he? I mean, he believes. We're told that. He believes the story, and he repents. Excuse me, it doesn't say he was repentant. It says he was baptized. He believes, and he was baptized. And then he starts noticing these signs and wonders, and people are amazed by that. They were amazed by Simon. Now they're amazed by Philip. And so what does Simon say? Maybe I need to, like, slide in on this market area. There's a whole untapped area of the market that I'm not into yet, and I need to kind of get in on that so I can increase my market share. Now, the apostles, meanwhile, in Jerusalem, get word that the gospel is going beyond the bounds of Judea. And you think this wouldn't be a surprise to them, but as it does, they're continuously surprised. So they send some guys down. Peter, uh, they send Peter and John down, and when Peter and John arrive, they pray, and the Holy Spirit shows up. And Simon, you can just kind of imagine this guy kind of sitting over in the corner. He's just like looking at this, and he's seeing it, and he's thinking, man, this is a, like, we can market this. Create a Facebook page, do a little bit of ad content, like we can make this happen. This is bankroll. And so he goes up to Peter and 
John, and he asked him, he's like, hey, you know, can I, like, make a capital investment here? <laughs> Need some product for the shelves. Like, let me give you some money, and you give me this, the secret to whatever this power is that you're doing. And what does Peter say? I love Peter, because he's not, Peter is not a tickle your ears kind of preacher, is he? Peter and John, in response to Simon, Peter says, May your silver perish with you, right? Like, no kind of like, hey, you know, you're not really thinking about this the right way. No sort of, let's meet him where he is and try to lead him along to a better place. No, like, why don't you just die with your money? Right? Like, not a very kind thing to say. And that's what he says. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain God's gift with money. And then Peter says this, you have no part or share in this, for your heart is not right before God. And we're kind of thinking, wait a second, I thought he believed. I thought he was baptized. So you're telling me, Peter, that people can believe and be baptized, that like they can have these out, like you can get up and you can say the right words. And you can go through the rituals and still the Apostle Peter can say, your heart is not right before God. Let that sink in for just a second. You can say the right words, you can do the right rituals, and still not be right with God. Luke writes this down because he wants us to ask, what does this reveal about the nature of conversion? What does this reveal about what it means to walk with Jesus? What does this reveal about what it means to turn from one way of life to another way of life. Because that's conversion is a turning, isn't it? Repenting and converting is, I was this way, I've converted, now I'm going this way. And what we begin to see is that, like, there are these outer marks. There are these visible marks. Like, we want profession, we want people to say they believe in Jesus. Like, that's an important step. We want people to be, to be baptized. That's crucial. We want people to receive the covenant. God offers grace in that way. But the grace that God offers has to be met and enabled by this internal reality that involves a change in orientation. I think that's the best way to put it here. Because the thing that doesn't happen for Simon is that his inner posture, the orientation of his heart, is exactly like it was when Philip first showed up and started preaching. At the very beginning of the text, Simon is looking for a payday. And at the end of the text, Simon is looking for a payday. His orientation, the orientation of his heart isn't on Jesus, is it? Where is it? It's straight on Simon all day long. He is entirely self-oriented. His heart hasn't been filled with perfect love. It hasn't been transformed from this inward curved self-focused thing to this Jesus-oriented thing. 
He's not filled with love for God and neighbor. He's filled with love for Simon. And he thinks this is something he can manipulate. You've got your God, and they've got their God, and I can play God, and I can, I can sort of dangle a fancy show in front of people, and they'll pay up, and I'll be comfortable. Don't, they all, don't all these religions work the same? Don't all these gods work the same way? And Peter's response is a call to repentance. Peter's response is a call to repentance. And I think that's the difference, right? He said the right thing. He said, I believe in Jesus. He went through the ritual. He was baptized. But the repentant orientation of his heart was missing, wasn't it? And you know what's striking? Even as we move through this text, Peter says to him, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. For I see, get this, I see you're in the gall of bitterness and the chains of wickedness. Like, can you pile up the condemnation any higher here, Peter? Like, please, like, is this a contest? How much gall and bitterness and chains and wickedness do we need to make the point to this guy, Simon? Apparently, it's a lot. He still doesn't get it because what does he not do? He doesn't repent. At least we're not told that he does. Even after all this, after this stunning warning by the lead apostle, we're never told that Simon repents. What does he do? He asks Peter to pray for him so that he doesn't have bad consequences. Like a kid saying I'm sorry so he doesn't get in trouble. Or a grown-up saying I'm sorry so he doesn't get in trouble. See how it's working? He never allows his heart to be turned. He's always looking either for how he can get a benefit or how he can get out of trouble. Which tells me... (laughs) Maybe conversion isn't primarily about what we get out of it. Now, we we treat it that way sometimes, don't we? Here's a way for you to go to heaven and get out of hell. Notice, none of that comes up here. None of it. What do we get? Repent. Turn from yourself to Jesus. Pray to the Lord that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. This isn't about what he gets out of it. It's about the kind of person he becomes. What is the intent of the heart? What does it look like for my heart to be reshaped, to be transformed? So that I am no longer a self-seeking person, but a Jesus-seeking person. Simon is seeking what he can get out of this conversion experience, or misexperience. He is not seeking to become a person who embodies the character of Jesus. And that's the issue, isn't it? Pray to the Lord that if possible, we don't, you might be so far gone, it's not even possible. Pray to the Lord that if 
possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. The manipulation, the conniving that you have engaged in today, trying to buy the Holy Spirit. If possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the chains of wickedness. And Simon answered, pray to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may happen to me. The focus through and through is on. I'd really like the benefits, and I'd really like to avoid the bad consequences. And this is a conversion that, to quote one scholar, misfires. It's a misconversion. It's not like he's not converted. (laughs) He's not right with God. It's not about what he can get out of it. It's about the kind of person Jesus wants to make him into. Now we get to the next passage. We hear Philip Philip is going on again and he's preaching some more. This one's quite counterintuitive. The angel of the Lord sends Philip to a place down the road to Gaza. Now this is counterintuitive for several reasons. Gaza, we're told here, it's a wilderness road. Gaza's kind of a ghost town, kind of an abandoned city in the first century. But Philip obeys him. And on the way, he runs into this guy from Ethiopia who is a court official uh, of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And everything about him says power, influence, and wealth, right? He has political office. He's secretary of the treasury. He's in a chariot. You don't hear a lot about people riding in chariots in the New Testament, do you? Because it's mostly poor people that the New Testament's engaging in. But here's a guy who's part of a royal court, who's in charge of the treasury, the money, And he's riding in the ancient version of a limousine, and he's reading a scroll of Isaiah, which again, like we just, we all carry copies of Isaiah around on our phones, but in the ancient world, scrolls were rare and expensive. You don't just grab one at the corner market or something like that. You only have them if you have the resources to obtain them, and they were very, very expensive. So everything about this guy says power, wealth, and influence. So he's reading Isaiah. And the Spirit of God tells Philip, go over to the chariot, jump in. And Philip does it. And he, and he hears the guy reading from Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And he asks the guy, do you understand what you're reading? This is encouraging to me. When I read passages of the Bible that I don't understand, it's helpful to remember that there are people in the Bible who don't understand the Bible. So... Let's be encouraged by that. And he says to Philip, how can I understand it unless someone guides me? And, he's, and the Lord has provided Philip to offer guidance. And so it's good for us to look for guidance as well. And so he invites Philip to get in and sit down beside him. The passage of Scripture he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And we're accustomed to reading that in light of Jesus, aren't we? But this guy is like, he's, who's he talking about here? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about somebody else? And Philip tells him in verse 35, he's talking about Jesus. And all of this, you know, sheep led to the slaughter, lamb silent before his shear. This is about 
the gospel. This is about how God has shown up in Jesus, the Messiah, to rescue his people so his blood could be shed for the forgiveness of sins, so that his spirit could come, so that the kingdom could come, so that God's will could be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of these things. And this is a crucial text that was saying, it's Jesus is coming, and he has come, and now he calls you to believe in him. And the Ethiopian eunuch is stoked. He's excited. There's some water. What's stopping me from being baptized? Let me do it. So you've got this kind of the same outward marks as you did with Simon, right? He says the right things, and he does the right things. He believes. He says he believes, and he wants to be baptized. So they hop out, and he baptizes him. What's the difference, though? They get down in whatever body of water is there, and the man is baptized. They come out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord snatches Philip away, mysteriously. We don't, wouldn't you love to have a little footnote on what's happening there? The eunuch saw him no more, and he goes on his way rejoicing. And I think that one word highlights the radical difference in these two conversion accounts. You've got one guy whose heart remains far from God the whole time. He does he says the right thing, and he does the right thing, but his heart is far from God. And then you've got Philip. He says the right thing, and he does the right thing, but his heart is filled with rejoicing. The posture of his heart is transformed. His orientation changes. No longer is he consumed with himself. He is consumed with Jesus. So how does this shape our understanding of conversion? How does this shed light on what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Be a Christian. Well, we need to ask ourselves some questions, don't we? Like, is my walk with Jesus primarily about what I can get out of it? Or about who he's making me into? Is my walk with Jesus, right? We're still in the Bible Belt, and people still think, well, you know, he's a good Christian man. Like places, not every place, but some places, like being a Christian helps your reputation. I've looked at websites of attorneys, member of such and such a Methodist church. Like, why would you put that on your website if you didn't think it helps your reputation in the community? Not saying you shouldn't, you're saying like pay attention. <laughs> Is our walk with Jesus primarily about what he does for us? Or is it primarily about, and, and by and what I mean is what he does for us by way of reward or avoiding consequences, right? So so get out of hell free, that kind of fire insurance salvation, which is all over the place, friends. It's kind of cliche, but it's cliche because it represents a real thing. Or is it, is the orientation of my heart being continually transformed to embody the character of Jesus because his Holy Spirit dwells within me and is reproducing his life and his character and his perfect love in me? A or B? I think we know the answer, don't we? But it's very easy, it's very easy for people who've been walking with the Lord for a long time, and I know this by experience, friends, 
It's very easy to say the right things and do the right things and still have hard places in your heart. It's very easy to say the right things and do the right things and still have hard places in your heart. And so I wonder if we can allow Scripture to, to kind of be, <laughs> like if we lay this over our heart, does it change the way we see ourselves? If we look at our own hearts through the lens of this text, are we more like Simon or more like the Ethiopian? Which one? Which one is it? The goal of conversion, like conversion is not an end in itself. And it's not like the point isn't just to, to get converted. Conversion, and we'll see this again and again, is the first step on a path of lifelong transformation. Am I growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Am I growing in Christian maturity or do I enjoy childish things? Are there places where I can identify that the Holy Spirit has been at work here? Like my temper's not as bad as it used to be because the Lord Jesus Christ is increasing my patience. Are there other, like my generosity is, like I used to be quite stingy, now I'm more generous. Are there objective things in my life that, I can see through the light of the Holy Spirit, and maybe those who know me best can see through the light of the Holy Spirit. I used to speak harshly to my children, but the Lord has filled my words with grace. Am I growing in these areas? And, and is that not because I'm just particularly disciplined and really strong, but because Jesus, with all of his beauty and all of his life and all of his glory and all of his power, has taken up residence in my being? And it's saying, there's something in your life, O'Reilly, that doesn't embody my character. i got to cut it out. And here's a place in your life where I can reproduce my life. And if that's, what, like, if that's the process, then yes, you're converted. And if there's nothing, <laughs> I don't say this kind of thing often, I don't think. If there's nothing like that in your life, then you better check whether you know Jesus. Like if there's no evidence, objective, fruit of the Spirit, Christian maturity, friends, don't waste time. Do not waste time. Repent. Get to the altar. Fall on your knees. Because everything hangs in the balance. And if there's one thing, like if there's one thing we get in this text, it's that walking with Jesus is not kind of a switch you flip or a status that you get. You can, go, you can grow closer to your spouse or you can grow farther from your spouse. Guess what? You can grow closer to Jesus or you can turn and walk away from him. We got people, right, who say the right things and do the right things, 
but their hearts are on a journey far away from the things they say and the things they do. By the mercies of God, let that not be true of us. By the mercies of God. By the mercies of God, let's be the kind of people who help one another grow in Christ-likeness. Who help our children grow in Christ-likeness. Who allow the Spirit of God to infiltrate our hearts and take away the that's not the way I want it, and what can I get out of it, and I'd like to accomplish this without having too many negative consequences. And imagine, imagine what Jesus will do with a body of believers who are given to him that way. Like nothing held back. Nothing. It's tough because we live in a world where conversion is kind of frowned upon anyway. Don't go trying to convert people. <laughs> and if you're not supposed to try to convert people, then you probably don't spend much time thinking about your own conversion either. But I wonder, I wonder what would happen to our walk with Jesus if we attended to these things. What did my conversion look like? What happened in my heart on that day? Was it quick or did it take some time? And what's happened since then? How's the Lord at work in my life? What's different about me now from the way I was a month ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? What's Different because if nothing's different, chances are Jesus is not involved. And having experienced this grace, am I becoming the kind of person who is a conduit of it? Having experienced the Holy Spirit. Convert me. Right? Notice again, friends, like this is not something that gets manipulated. Neither of these men are in charge of the process. One tries to manipulate it. He doesn't have it. One is simply given over to what God wants to do in his life. I don't know. Just help me. And God dumps grace all over it. We don't come in and say, you know, let me work it out with Jesus. Let me get, I'm, not, I'm a self-starter. I'm a, I'm a pretty sharp guy. I can figure this out. Come up with a plan. Let me, like, there's a formula, right? This whole Christianity thing. You just, A plus B equals you're a Christian. It doesn't work that way. This is purely the discretion of the Holy Spirit. Who offers grace and calls us to repentance. And when we try to, try to, Work it out in our own, with our own ingenuity and capability and strength, like it's not working out. That's only evidence that we haven't heard from him. It's only evidence that he hasn't done anything in us yet. But when we're poured out, when our response is, won't someone guide me, then in those moments the Holy Spirit is present. 
everything Jesus has to offer us. And that opens up every question in the room. Where am I in this path? Do I need to be converted? Am I the kind of person who says the right thing and does the right thing and has a hard heart? Do I need to be converted? If I have been converted, am I continuously seeking after the Lord Jesus Christ and desiring truthfully, truly, to have His life reproduced in me? And am I becoming a conduit of that grace to others? Am I available when the Holy Spirit wants to whisk me to the next person to tell them the good news? Do I know the good news? And can I say it? competently and confidently. I think that's probably one of the marks of the conversion. We desire to be the kind of people who can tell the good news about Jesus. Do I want to be able to be the kind of do I want to be the kind of person who is introducing people to Jesus? Because that's what the church does. That's just what the church does. Like That's the only job. <laughs> and everything else is ancillary, peripheral, unimportant if we're not evangelists. This is how the kingdom spreads. This is the way of the kingdom. And it's not about what we can get out of it. It's about who we become. Kingdom people. People with a character that aligns with the kingdom of God. Am I becoming the kind of person who honors Jesus in such a way that people meet Jesus? I want to be that kind of person. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.